We're in Revelation 21. We're actually going to be considering Revelation 21, verse 1 through 22, verse 5. But rather than read that entire section, I'm just going to read aloud the first eight verses of Revelation chapter 21 and ask that if you're able, would you please stand as I read this portion of Scripture for us. Hear God's word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, God, Help us, we pray, to understand your word, to understand what it is teaching us, that we might live according to it, that we might put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to be forgiven of our sin, and that we might be built up in faith. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. It was a number of years ago, I'm not sure how many it was exactly, a number of years ago that a a book was published. Many of you are familiar with the title of that book, Heaven is for Real, a little boy's astounding story of his trip to heaven and back. And it was the recollections of a four-year-old who had faced uh, a life-threatening, life-saving surgery. And when he awakened from his surgery, he had recollections of being in heaven and seeing loved ones there. And the book was eventually made into a movie uh, by the, that title, Heaven is for Real. And just for full disclosure, I've not read the book, nor have I seen the movie. So I'm not here to critique either one, but I am here to say this. I don't need to read the book, and I don't need to see the movie <laughs> to know that heaven is for real. Because one who has been raised from the dead and who promised me that he would go and prepare a place for me in heaven, has told me that it's for real. I don't need those recollections. Can I just be, I'm just going to be honest. I don't don't trust recollections of four-year-olds about anything. (laughs) I have a four-year-old grandson, right? He thinks I'm Batman, so what does that tell you? I know that heaven is for real. And Revelation 21 is giving us a picture of Revelation. Now, what Revelation 20 was, and we looked at that last week, how Jesus wins. That was more or less a theme of 
Revelation 20, and it talked about the, the victory won in Christ and the judgment that follows. We, we talked about that. Well, so that's more, that's, we could say, in a manner of speaking, it's the bad news of the return of Jesus. It's the sobering news. That, that's probably a better way to put it. But here is the glorious news. Here's the flip side. This is what awaits the people of God. This is what awaits the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who've been bought with his blood, those who've been purchased with the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lamb, the victory of the Lamb, the, the spoils of victory are being won. And, and Revelation 21 is just full, like this whole epistle, it's full of symbolism. And in a sense, you get the reason why, because how do you describe the indescribable? The symbolism helps. And I believe that we can look at Revelation 21 as well as as we get into the first part of 22. We can come to understand better what the eternity that awaits. And so one of the questions I want to pose to this passage of Scripture and seek answers is, what kind of place is heaven? What kind of place is heaven? And this passage, this text, the way we're looking at it this morning, it, it kind of falls out into three easily divided sections. And it'll help us as we make our way through this passage of Scripture, and seek to answer the question, what kind of place is heaven? Well, I'm going to give you a three-part answer. Heaven is an eternal place of joy. Heaven is an eternal place of beauty. And heaven is an eternal place of life. Joy, beauty, and life are marks of heaven. And I think saying that heaven is a place of, we could call it eternal joy, eternal joy is one way of summing up what we read in verses 1 through 8 that we've already read aloud. But look again at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, as we look at other scriptures, I don't believe what we're being taught necessarily is that the present earth, the present heavens are destroyed completely or wiped out. But this is really there's really more of a picture of renewal, of Jesus called it the regeneration, is really the language he used uh, in the Gospels. Now, we often think in terms of, in, when it comes to, in terms of the regeneration of life, the new heavens and the new earth, our minds go to 2 Peter. Let me read a few verses from chapter 3 of 2 Peter. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming, coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That certainly sounds like things are cooked. <laughs> but I think what we see really in this picture from Second Peter and what we get from Romans 8, that language of the earth in bondage, in corruption, waiting to be set free from its corruption, is that there's, just, there's this renewal. It's, it's a rebirth. God takes all that, was, all that is good and he removes all that's evil and sinful and broken. In, fact, in verse 1 uses some interesting language. It says, the sea was no more. And you think, what? No walks on the beach, the new heavens, the new earth? You need to understand to the ancient world, the sea was simply a place of storms and 
uh, and monsters. It, it was something to be feared. I mean, if you think about it, we're not made to live on the ocean. We've got to have help, right? We've got to build a boat. We've got to have some means of floating. But so that's all that's dangerous and scary is removed. All that's fearful in this life is gone. That's the picture. And then look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. You know what that language is? That's the language of God's covenant promise. You go back to Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, and you look at when God made his promises to Abraham, it's that language. I will be a God to you and to your descendants after you. And so this is where it's all coming to fulfillment. All those promises made all the way back in Genesis to Abraham and his descendants, who, as we know, when we look at Galatians and Romans and other places, Abraham's descendants are marked by their faith. Not by, not by their gene pool. Those who share the faith of Abraham are true sons of Abraham. And so that all, this all comes to fruition. God's covenant promises are fulfilled. And it says the dwelling place of God is with man. Literally, God is tabernacling. You know, it's, it's the picture of the tabernacle, the presence of God amongst his people. But where I want to zero in as we keep moving forward is verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. It's eternal joy. It's eternal joy. We need to savor it. We need to linger on it. That's what's being pictured here. You know, death is gone. Think about it. Every sad thing in life really is a form of death, isn't it? A sad goodbye, it's, it's a form of death. Um, a loss of a job, it's a form of death. I mean, all these things, an illness, it's, it's, a, it's a death of my health. I mean, really, if you think about it, you could describe every sad thing in life as a form of death. And what does this say? Death is gone. It's eradicated. The former things are passed away. There'll be no such thing. We've said it before, but let's just say it again and rejoice in it. There'll be no such thing as cancer. There'll be no such thing as Alzheimer's, as war, as selfishness, as divorce, as disappointment. There'll be no worry. There'll be no anxiety. There'll be no disappointment, no rejection. It's all gone. What's happening in the new heavens and the new earth that we are promised is a fulfillment of Isaiah 25 verse 8. Let me read that for us. He will swallow up death forever. Don't you love that? He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth for the Lord has spoken. Heaven is a place of eternal, unending joy. It's because we're in the presence of him that we can say is joy incarnate. Psalm 16, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Heaven, can I just say it again? Heaven is a place of eternal joy. You know, one of the things I love about C.S. Lewis is he's got a way of just capturing feelings and giving expression to feelings through metaphor. And one of my favorites that he uses 
he'll say that joy, a sense of joy, he describes it in characters in his books. He says, it's like that feeling you get, Lewis would say, on the first day, the first morning you wake up on summer vacation as a child in school, or the first day of a vacation, and you're with friends or you're with family. You know, you, you remember that feeling? You know, maybe it's, the, maybe it's a Monday night, and everybody's driven all day, and you finally get to a beach house, you've rented with family, and you're, or friends, and you're all there, and the week is still in front of you. You just got that feeling of everyone's laughing, and there's fun, and you're looking forward to it. And you know what heaven is? It's that feeling that just intensifies over and over and over. It's exponential. Heaven is the eternal hello. It's the eternal joy of being with those you know and love, but more importantly, being in with the one who loves you and gave himself for you. Heaven is a place of eternal joy that just won't quit. It's not only that, but it's a place of eternal beauty. We could say, or eternal glory. That's another good word to stick in there. Let me read aloud for us verses 9 through 27 of Revelation 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb." And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass." And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What are we told here? What is being pictured here? Well, I'll tell you what's being pictured here. Ephesians 5 is visualized. Ephesians 5 is coming to life. What's Ephesians 5 say? Let me just read 30, verses 31 and 32. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. The church, the body of Christ, is the bride of Christ. Marriage is a picture of that relationship, we know. And here, the bride of the Lamb, symbolized by the city of Jerusalem, is coming down out of heaven. It's the opposite of Babel in Genesis 11, isn't it? Remember when man tried to build the tower to God, and that didn't work? No. God's people are, come, are being brought from heaven to the, to the Lamb. This new Jerusalem is synonymous with the bride of Christ. Listen to what Dr. Doug Kelly writes. Everything in world history is getting ready for what God is already doing in his church. That will bring human history and all civilization to its consummation. I mean, notice the dimensions of this city. They're, they're staggering. Uh, it's we read about them in verses 15 through 17. I mean, this, it forms an immense cube. A cube was a sign of perfection in the ancient world. It's this immense cube. The walls are approximately, you've probably got notes in your Bible, 1,400 miles long. We're meant to be overwhelmed at the size of this city. And it shows us this city's immense, mind-blowing size, the, the, the grand purposes of God. His people are to, to fit into this city, a people of every tongue, tribe, and nation that can't be numbered. And this city is marked by its beauty. I mean, we li listed all the, the jewels, and I may not have pronounced half of them right. Um, but it's, we're, just, we're meant to be overwhelmed by the beauty of this city, these gates of pearl. We sang about it just a moment ago in one of the, the hymns that we sung, these these precious stones, and then the famous streets, right? The street of gold, verse 21, the streets of gold, pure gold, like transparent glass. I mean, it just, it just defies description. I mean, and the picture we're meant to get, it's like, it's like being in a wedding, and the doors open in the back of the sanctuary, and the bride begins her march down the aisle, and, and, she's, and uh, it, she's meant to be a picture, and she is a picture of beauty, that's the picture here, the bride of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but there's, there's even more glory, more beauty in heaven. And we see that in verses 22 through 27, how there's no need for light in this city because the Lord Jesus himself, the Lamb, provides the light. Uh, verse 24 is a, is a good reminder that says, By its light all the nations walk, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it. In other words, all that's good and beautiful in this world is brought in to the next. Dennis Johnson, he writes this in his commentary. It seems John is saying that every good and beautiful thing from the old creation will be in the new creation. Nothing of beauty will be lost. Instead, it will be present in a perfected and incorruptible way. So, so we need to see that heaven is, a new, is, heaven is the new heavens and the new earth. It's not the ethereal floating on a cloud, right? We're not handed the, we're not handed the harp. Uh, we're, we're, it's a place to enjoy the beauty and wonder of God's creation, but without spoil or without any blemish. But the true source of beauty, the true source of glory in heaven is the glory of the Lamb. It's the glory of the Lord Jesus. That's what we get in verses uh, 21 through, 22 through 27 of Revelation 21. It's the, it's the glory of Jesus. I love 
the hymn that we've sung before, written by Samuel Rutherford. The title of it is The Sands of Time Are Sinking. And Rutherford had to have been inspired by Revelation 21, particularly when he wrote this stanza, this verse. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace, not at the crown he gifteth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. That's the glory. That's the the beauty of heaven. There is beauty and glory in heaven ultimately because the king of glory is there and we will see him as he is. Isaiah 60, a lot lot of Old Testament references coming to fruition here. Listen to what Isaiah 60 says about this. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, your days of mourning or grief shall be ended. The Lamb is all the glory. As I was thinking about this passage, my mind was drawn immediately to the Gospels, and what we, we come to call the transfiguration. And it's recorded for us in Mark 17, Matthew, excuse me, Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. You recall, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain, and they see Jesus in his unfiltered glory. Let me just read from Mark's gospel. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say. It's kind of, I mean, don't you love the gospel saying, Peter didn't know what to say, so he said something stupid. That's what it is. <laughs> For he did not know what to say, and they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And and that's recorded three times, right? In those three Gospels. But do you know what precedes that event, that blinding light, that appearance of Moses and Elijah, that, that voice from heaven, what precedes that event In all three of the Gospels are Jesus' words to this effect. If anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. That's the cost of following the Lord Jesus. You know that being in difficult, trying circumstances, whatever suffering you're enduring could be God's call in your life to take up your cross, to die to self. And I believe it's no accident that those sobering, could we say chilling words of Jesus are followed by this vision of glory. Because Jesus is saying, I'm worth it. It's worth the cost. It's not take up your cross so that you can live this aesthetic, you know, just a stoic kind of lifestyle well, I'll just I'll give up all these things just for the sake of giving up all these things. No, it's worth it for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says when he calls us, he bids us come and die. But notice, it is whom he calls us to die for. The glory 
of the Lamb, the undisputed glory of Jesus. He's worth it. And when we, when we in heaven look at him for eternity, that's what we'll keep telling ourselves. It was worth it. It was worth it. It was worth it. He's worth it. Heaven's a place of eternal joy. It's a place of eternal beauty, eternal glory. And lastly, it's, obviously, it's a place of eternal life. It's a place of eternal life. Let's, let's go to verses 1 through 5, chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and light will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. You know what's happening here? It's a picture of being taken back to the garden. We're back to Eden, the tree, the tree of life, this river of life. If you read Ezekiel 47, Ezekiel saw a very similar vision, a, a river that flowed from the temple and produced trees with all kinds of fruit. The river of life and the tree of life dominate the scene here, and it, things are just being brought back full circle. It's, it's, it's reigning with Christ forever and ever a picture of eternal life. It's, it's the true nature of heaven. We get that in verses 3 through 5. We're with the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's, it's eternal joy. It can't be taken away because it's eternal life. Gazing on eternal beauty. But I want to take us back before we finish to some verses we actually skipped over. Chapter 21. Look at with me in chapter 21, verses 7 and 8. Jesus says, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And then verse 27 but nothing unclean will enter it, enter this city, this, this place, enter heaven, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, what is this saying? Is this saying only the moral, only those who meet certain moral standards get heaven? Well, we know for a fact that there are cowards in heaven. Peter's there. Peter denied Jesus three times. There are cowards in heaven. We know for a fact there are murderers in heaven. David had Uriah the Hittite put to death. Moses killed the Egyptian. Paul participated in the murder of Stephen. There are murderers in heaven. We know for a fact the sexually immoral are there. Rahab the prostitute is there. Hebrews 11 tells us. So what's the deal? Let me quote Dr. Kelly again. The issue determining whether we get into heaven or hell is whether we look to Jesus in faith and repentance. It's not that the people in heaven did not commit sin. They did. It was where they looked after they sinned. 
They looked in faith to the Lord for pardon and for a new life in fellowship with him. In the eternal plan of God, all their sins that otherwise would have put them into hell have been transferred to the suffering in hell that Jesus endured on the cross at Calvary. So once again, Revelation comes and it's given us hope. This is a picture of how we can know that heaven is our destiny, the place of eternal joy, beauty, and life. Just this week, um, I called a, a friend of this congregation whose name I won't mention from the pulpit, but he has been told by his doctors that he stands a very good possibility of entering into heaven very soon. It was interesting to me how I was opening this passage of Scripture and then speaking to my friend. And thought to myself, he stands a very real chance of grasping the reality of this eternal joy and beauty and life. Heaven is for real. It's not a fable. It's not a myth. We have the promise of the risen Lord Jesus Christ that, we can, that our place is there when our hope and trust is in Christ. But you know, here's the truth. This, and this is, not, this is not me trying to be dramatic at all. But this is just, folks, this is the truth. Some of us get that message that, you, that you've only got a certain amount of time left. But one of us could get killed driving home today. That's just reality. That's not being morbid or melodramatic. None of us are promised today or tomorrow. Do you know where you will spend eternity? That's a question that has to be asked. And it needs the right answer. My name must be in the Lamb's book of life. Well, how does it get there? Are you trusting in the finished work of the Lamb? Is your hope and trust in Christ alone? Because if it is, then what you and I have to grab hold of is a place of eternal joy, beauty, and life. Heaven is for real. Let's pray. Oh God, we do thank you for your goodness, grace, and mercy to us and the great promise of heaven. The Lord Jesus promised he would prepare that place for his people, and that's where our hope is. We pray that all who are here would put their hope and trust in the Lord Jesus, that they might know that this awaits them as well. Oh, God, we pray that as we come to your table, that it would remind us of heaven and be yet another part of that foretaste of heaven that worship is. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.